of Rank and Review. And yes, it's a bunker episode. If you don't know what a bunker episode is, in October of 2020, I sequestered myself, <laughs> maybe not in a literal bunker, but in a bunker of my imagination. I watched 30 movies, an entire season of the original Twilight Zone, and read four, book, er, four books, all in 30 days. I took a lot of notes, I recorded some of my experiences, and... It's a solo show, and as you may have known if you've listened to some of the other ones, I'm much more comfortable having a guest. But this being the third Bunker episode, once again, I think that I've gotten a little bit more comfortable doing it. Each episode's been a little better. So I hope you're going to have some patience with me for this Bunker episode. If you like them, please send some feedback. If you don't like them, you can also send some feedback, but know that there's only two left, and you're not going to have to deal with them until the next season of Rank and Review. The theme of this Bunker episode is Netflix and my love-hate relationship with it. I'm going to be reviewing six films, and I'm going to talk about a graphic novel called My Friend Dahmer. Um, and I also have my dear, dear friend Scott Lehman's going to help me out, and he's going to talk to me about two of the six movies. I'll have Scott joining me for a review of Terrifier. Then we're going to talk about Cargo, Hush, the aforementioned graphic novel My Friend Dahmer, we're going to talk about a Stephen King adaptation called 1922. We're going to talk about I'm thinking of ending things, and then Scott will once again help me out with one more review at the end there of The Ritual. So that's what's on deck for the 199th episode of Rankin Review. As always, I am your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. You can send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ranking Review. We tend to drop every other Wednesday, so please tell your friends about it. Now, let's get the third Bunker episode underway. I'm old. Middle-aged, I guess, but I feel old. The world's leaving me behind. I grew up with video stores and VHSs and hard copies of things. People actually owned and collected things, like movies and music. Now it's all digital, and I have to learn to accept this. And I know that there's all sorts of other platforms that release digital entertainment. But Netflix seems to be the grandpappy these days. And unlike other streaming, ser streaming services like, like Shudder and you know Amazon and some of the other ones, a lot of their Netflix originals cannot be made and sell through for a physical copy in Blu-ray or DVD for us collectors of the genre. 
this has rubbed me the wrong way about Netflix and made me a little bit snobby about it. But that said, if you have a new Mike Flanagan horror movie on Netflix, I'm probably going to watch it. And they know. They've got the cinephiles. they got Martin Scorsese. they got the Coen brothers. People are going to watch Netflix. But that doesn't mean they don't grow to resent Netflix. This episode, we're going to talk about six movies that I watched on Netflix that, at least initially, were not able to be in my collection. And we're going to talk about a graphic novel about Jeffrey Dahmer. Maybe that's sort of a suggestion as to how crazy I am that I <laughs> ended up being able to relate to Jeffrey Dahmer and be able to sort of wag my finger a little bit at the high school kids that didn't see them. But I don't know. I think if I had a Jeffrey Dahmer in my class in high school, I probably wouldn't have noticed him either. Sad, but true. And I do have to accept change, you know. We can't have what we want. We can't always just get it. We can't always be like it used to be. So, how do I make my peace with Netflix? Maybe this episode is a step in that direction. No guests today, although you will be hearing from my dear friend Scott Lehman for two of the reviews. Let's talk about six Netflix pictures and a comic book. shoulder. What if that guy did this to your car? What guy? The clown? Do you really think someone slashed my tires? Well, he knows this is your car. He saw us getting into it earlier. Okay, uh, Terrifier, written and directed by Damien Leone. Uh, I guess this character had his debut in a movie called, uh, was it The Hallows? All, All Hallows Eve. All Hallows Eve, thank you. Um, I haven't seen that particular movie, but it does not have a great reputation. The only thing memorable about it was the segment about the clown, I guess, or so it is told. Um, this is a weird one for me because... Uh, I absolutely 100% appreciate the aesthetic that they have in this movie. Like, they're really going for a grimy, go-for-broke, unapologetic, retro 80s, 70s, like, meat grinder yep. of a movie. And they're unapologetic. Yeah. And in this age of everybody being so squeamish about content, it was weirdly refreshing to watch somebody clearly not give a fuck about <laughs> stepping on anyone's toes. And I do appreciate that. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people talking about Art the Clown as being this new huge figure for the horror. You know, he's going to take his place among the Freddy Kruegers and the Jasons. And... As much as I'm, a, uh, I, I, I'm into the image of the killer clown and like I'm behind what they're going for, 
I still think the jury is out for me a little bit on Art the Clown as the institution. We were talking about before we were at, before we did this review about the more we find out about certain characters, the less frightening they become. Yeah. Art the Clown is at the end of this movie still a complete mystery. It's <laughs> like we don't know anything about it. And uh is that a problem? I guess is the thing. And going forward, like do we want to know more about him or or like if it, it feels like they painted themselves into a box cuz if it just becomes sequel after sequel of him cutting naked chicks in half uh, then it sort of becomes the thing that it's kind of winking at. But, I mean, I'll still buy it on, uh, on Blu-ray. We'll, we'll still watch and talk about every entry. But uh, if it goes the other way and starts exploring Art the Clown and why he is what he is and what his, what his wants and desires are and what his weaknesses are, will he be scary anymore? I yeah. mean, can we get anything beyond these 84 minutes? I will give a, a sort of conditional is what it is thumbs up for this like over the top delirious 84 minute killer clown movie because I wanted to watch a killer clown movie and this was a killer clown movie. Um, but but um, I, I'm wondering what kind of longevity it will have. I mean, the jury's still out. See, I'm, I'm going to start by saying this film had me from the very start. <laughs> okay. It, it was, it, I had heard a lot about it before I had seen it uh, as far as there's, you know, this horror Facebook group of people were talking about it and I wanted to see it and I, there's no way I could see it at all. And then it, somebody posted, hey, Terrifier's on Netflix now. And I'm like, what? That doesn't sound like something Netflix would have. I thought it was a joke. And then sure enough, there it was. Uh, so I was pretty excited to finally see this movie I'd heard so much about from you know horror people that I kind of trusted. So, uh, so I was happy in that way that it was available for me to see. And uh, yeah, like you said, that, that old school vibe, I just, just loved it. And it's, it's grisly and... Uh, you're you're right though. I think Terrifier two right now is in production, I believe, or they're they're finishing it or something. But uh, my fear is also that they try and explain too much. It's it's best for Art the Clown not to make too much sense. But yet, I guess you do have to have a little bit more than. Where do you go with it? Is the question. Yeah. But I mean, someone could say the same thing about Friday the Thirteenth. Where how could you possibly have twelve Friday the Thirteenth movies? And again, by the way, make another one. Why are there 12 Friday the 13th <laughs> movies, damn it? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, these women are out on a night in the town and they encounter a clown. And originally, they just think he's funny and they actually pose with pictures for him. And it's not but sure... It's Sorry? It's just the one girl. They're just the one girl thinks it's funny. That... One, the other one is creeped out from the moment she the sees moment him. The moment she right? sees him, yeah. yeah. He's just way too still and way too stoic, and he never says a word. Um, and there's just something menacing about his presence right away. And we know what movie we're watching. And uh, so, yeah. But did they select him by interacting with him, or had he already selected them? What are the rules to this world, and does it matter? In the end, it pays off with the gore, and there's some good suspense scenes. But again, if somebody was to say this was just mindless, pointless violence, I would have a hard time defending. <laughs> it, well, it is because that's what some people complain about: is there's no, 
not a lot of character development, no there story isn't. really. And uh, and I kind of nod and agree and say, yeah, yeah, there's not. But uh, <laughs> there's there's films that have story if you want one. Go yeah. see one of those. But every now and then, you just want to see a mindless slasher film. <laughs> not everybody, but every now and then, I that's kind of what I'm in the mood for. Sometimes you, you want something deeper substance, and sometimes you want a crazy, <laughs> crazy demonic scary looking clown I mean the, he is this art character he's probably one of the most terrifying kind of creepy villains I've seen in a long time just something about that face and that grin with his teeth are black and red and uh, you get the feeling like he just absolutely loves what he is doing he could not be wanted, happier about it <laughs> it's like they wanted to make this 84 minutes of just just terror and uh that's, that's all they wanted to do, it seems. Uh, the acting, was it deliberately a little bit off-center? Do you think they cast it deliberately or, or told the actors to be a little bit B-movie in their presentation? I don't know. I don't know if they did. I don't know either. Uh, and again, that's I don't know if that's a win or a loss for the movie. If I thought they were doing it on purpose, I would say points for paying that <laughs> much attention. But I suspect that maybe it was just them making do with whatever actor they could get their hands on. Well, are you talking about the girls, especially? Or? Uh, the girls, and there's that one victim handyman guy who's a little bit awkward. Yeah, I yeah, think. he was, yeah. Um, because uh, the clown, David Horton Thornton, I mean, he does an amazing job as like as somebody that doesn't speak. Just the body language, the way he carries uh, his his grin, uh, the way he walks, his head movements. He does a phenomenal job. Look, uh, I I have actually positive. taken a course in clowning. Okay, <laughs> this is the kind of life that I have led, and uh, like, bas- like what like baskets? <laughs> clowning. <laughs> um. He actually does, in presentation, do a lot of sort of traditional vaudevillian clown work. It like, uh, oh, yeah? <laughs> I, I I appreciate it. I mean, he's obviously using it in the services of intimidation, and there is that level. Like the the clown is sort of uh, trying to engage. You know, there's there's an aggressive aspect, even if a tra- clown's trying to make you laugh, he's getting in your face a little bit, right? And, uh, yeah, they're still unnerving. Yeah, and this guy makes a point of like leaning in on that. Oh, I'm going to get in your face and in your guts, and I'm going to have a great time, great time doing it. This retro aesthetic that the movie does really well is one of these things that's... I, I thought it was a fad that was going on, that I, I think I keep on thinking it's going to go away, but like we genuinely do seem to worship this late 70s, early 80s aesthetic. Like... We keep going back to it again and again and again. Yeah. Like newer generations are rediscovering it, not on the basis of nostalgia, presumably, but on the basis of I don't know, just the strange, tactile aesthetic of it. Yeah, fair enough. Same way that uh, I mean, would House of the Devil be right. as interesting a film if it didn't feel like it came right from nineteen seventy-five? Yeah, no, it's like the 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 deformed twin of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and some of us, we were kind of talking about not a lot of character development. I wonder, in a movie like this, though, is that really an important aspect? Would, 
Would you really have cared more about these girls getting away if you knew about their backstories? Well, or is it, or is it good enough to know that uh, hey, they don't deserve this? I hope they get away. Uh, I don't think they deserve to be sawed in half. From the-, the movie just knows that it's about Art killing them, and I honestly yeah. don't think there was anything they could do. I think the second that Art decided he was going to kill them, they were fucked. I didn't see any way that they could stop Art. And it's funny how, like, the movie celebrates its subversion when our survival chick doesn't just get killed, but she gets shot in the fucking face repeatedly, (laughs) repeatedly (laughs) in a close-up shot. The first shot goes off and you're like, did that just happen? Are we real? And then the second and the third and the fourth. Okay, yeah, no, she is, (laughs) she is done. Um, From that point on in the movie, like, and you, you no, still got 40 minutes to go. Exactly. But I do think that's the moment that the suspense in the movie died for me. There was some suspense from her hiding from Art and being chased around the car lot. But at that point, it was just, Art's going to kill whoever he comes across. And that's the joy that I can get out of this movie. My, like, where I started with the review is, is how much legs this will have, I don't know. I mean, I had fun watching it, but I'm thinking it's maybe a three-star movie and it's getting four or five-star treatment. Yeah, maybe. It's probably a three-star movie that I enjoy to a four-star level. Uh, that's allowed, man. <laughs> um, and and uh, the character you're referring to, that's uh, Tara. She was played by Jenna Kennel. Okay. I believe Kennel or Kennel. Anyway, I, I thought she did. She was well as far as a character. She gave off kind of, I thought, uh, a lot of Nev Campbell kind of vibes, I thought. I'm not sure if it, the, the appearance was similar or or just the character or something. That's just what I was thinking. But uh, no, I, I did think she was she was good. She had moxie. She was easy to cheer for. And yeah, again, once that turning point in the film happens, I, I feel like the movie was out of surprises. Still more yeah. fun to watch. You're going to still see Art do his intimidating Art the Clown thing, but there was nothing more to be discovered for the rest of the movie. And I'm wondering going forward what they do. Again, are we going to learn more about Art, and will that make Art less scary? Or will we just make this movie again and again and again? I don't know. I don't but know. I, believe after, I believe after that you still get one of the one of the best beheading scenes I've seen as well. <laughs> as far, that's, no. That was well done. And Special effects... <laughs> Like, I, I haven't said fairly enough. The special effects works in this movie, and the gore and the red. Like, if you're in it for the teeth There's and no tissue... CGI. No, no, yeah. no. If you want to see good, prosthetic, you know, traditional, you know, gross-out effects, absolutely full-blooded endorsement of this film. <laughs> I, I watch a lot of disgusting things as well. And 37 minutes into this movie, you get... A scene, which I don't even want to describe, <laughs> but if you've seen the movie, you know about the scene, and it's it's so gruesome, I even have almost a hard time watching that, where I'm like, jeez, I, you know, I, I, I kind of turn a little bit away for a second, like, gee, oh, wow. I don't know what Bravo. she could Bravo have possibly, <laughs> what could she possibly have done to deserve such a terrible fate? <laughs> And then Art takes a selfie with her afterwards. Yeah. That was just the punchline. And yeah, this the ma- macabre humor. I could see this taking a really drastic Freddy Krueger turn in future movies too, eh? It could. I mean, we're not going to hear Art, Art tell jokes. That's right. one thing he does. He stays silent. Even when he gets punched, he minds that he's screaming, but yeah. not a sound comes out of him. But 
Uh, it's, it's an interesting film. This should not be anybody's first horror film. No. Um, no. Start somewhere else if you want to say, yeah, maybe I like horror. I don't know. Let's check this movie out. No, don't do that. But uh, if, if you like that kind of stuff, then you'll probably like it. Yeah, but, I would uh, say hardcore horror fans only need apply. Definitely. Good enough? Cool. You're the first people I've seen. The first people who are still people. What's a count left on them? It's 46 hours, give or take. They're setting out hunting parties. If you want to give this baby a second chance, you just stay away. What's this? Just making hay while the sun shines. The sun's not shining, Beck. I'm not going to hurt you. Promise you. Let's help each other. Rosie. This way. We gotta find the clever man. If you're sick, he can give you good medicine. If I don't make it to the hills, you're all I've got. You can't lose hope. Any girl you need to be worried about is your own. We're here. So when things get back to normal, it's not gonna happen, is it? I don't think normal's on the horizon. There's a short film called Cargo that literally got millions of views on YouTube. And it's interesting to me because I've never fully understood, you know, short films that the audience that they get is so small i mean it's a proof of concept you can make them cheaper than you can make a feature film but um you know one of my great frustrations as a want to be artist is creating work that nobody sees or pouring all sorts of effort into a play or an evening of theater that a few hundred people see and then it's gone forever uh i've, I've produced a short film and i've like i've made them i understand but you know, it's only, it seems, for industry people. And the weird thing about this short film, Cargo, is that it got popular. It got very popular. And it was a zombie short film made in Australia about a man who finds himself bitten and having to face being changed into a zombie, but also having to be the sole caregiver for a child. Netflix decided to pour some money into this, and they made a feature film out of the Cargo short. And it's not a disservice to say that the an hour and 45 minute film accomplishes everything that the short film did in seven. But it's also a weird double-edged sword, isn't it? Like, sure they accomplished everything that a short seven minute film did that in an hour and 45. So I compliment the film Cargo, but I very, very much enthusiastically compliment the short from which it is based. The credited directors for both the short and the feature are Ben Howling and Yolanda Ramke. And yes, with the feature, they scored Martin Freeman as their lead. 
and I've said it before in the podcast, Martin Freeman just always shows up in interesting projects. He's always, you know, inserting himself. Even before he was a big name, he somehow managed to headline The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Before The Office was popular on this side of the ocean, he was starring in The Office in England. You know, he starred in the Hobbit movies, and, like, he just seems to be able to show up in all sorts of interesting places. He was in Black Panther, you know, Best Picture-nominated Marvel movie. So he's kind of a good guy to have in your movie, and he picks interesting projects, and I like him playing against type a little bit here. He's charming, he's friendly, but there's nothing sort of goofy or comic about the performance. This is a person who's dealing with a lot of losses, and he's trying to deal with them as best as he can. He loses family members, and he gains family members. And the movie is an epic quest across the outback of Australia. And it's a dangerous, dangerous land. As far as other zombie movies to compare it to, it's very similar to The Dead, a film set in Africa. And if you've ever heard my review of that particular film by the Ford brothers, you'll know that putting it in this context is giving it very, very friendly company. I love zombie movies, as you know, so maybe I have a little bit of a, an edge up going into the film. But this is an epic sort of journey movie. It's like we have so many zombie movies to tell, tales to tell from all around the world. And this one is, you know, it's not a zomcom, it's not an action, it's not even purely a horror movie. It is a quest. It is a quest to keep this baby safe, no matter what you have to do. And there, it's fragmented, there's lots of little, sort of little incidental things and people that he meets and encounters that he has. But the basic through line of the movie is the same as the short film. I would very much look forward to see what these guys do going forward, and I like the world that they created from the zombies. It's not just everyday sort of want-to-eat-your-brain zombies. They're a little bit different in their affectations. They, they, they leak these weird pus things out of their nose and eyes, and that they don't seem very coordinated. And uh, there's just there's something tactile and tough and almost evil about the world that we're presented with. And because it's so dark and because it's so evil and it's all sort of presented in the bright, unobscured, harsh landscape, you know, you, you kind of feel wrapped up in it. And it's counterbalanced by this man who, no matter what happens, tries to put on a happy face, if not for himself, but for the people around him. He's everything that you would want to be in the apocalypse, and unfortunately, everything that, you know, so few of us would manage. Hey, listen, listen, listen. You just... Don't touch me! Andy, you can't control this! You don't fucking keep this from me! I mean, how long were you going to play long for one until I turned on you? On her? No. Well, you have to take her. What do you mean? You have to what take her. You have to take her. You have to take her. Stop. Just stop. Come on. <laughs> I suppose, though, that's all secondary. The question that really needs to be answered is, is the movie any good? I think that it is, but I think it's for zombie appreciators, zombie fans, you know? It is a walk, not a run. It's not a wall-to-wall -wall zombie carnage type of thing. It doesn't deliver in the sort of typical teeth and tissue sort of way that a lot of people are expecting and looking for in a zombie movie. So no, if that's what you're looking for, a Return of the Living Dead type of romp, no. 
But one of the things I've said that I love about the genre, the genre, no, the zombie genre, is how flexible it is. And this is a drama slash quest movie. So maybe, maybe, maybe there are new genres breaking in, into the things day in and day out, and we just don't pay proper attention to it. You know, there's zomcoms, zomdramas, and straight zombie horror. And this is a good example of a zombie drama, but sort of like the Schwarzenegger picture Maggie, I don't know if everybody is going to be on board for it. It kind of makes you feel a little bit dour. It makes you ask hard questions about how would you react? Where would you be? And I love that it's this pocket of the world. It's uh, the island of Australia is dealing with this as far as we know. Who knows what the rest of the world is? There's literally millions of other stories going on, but we're locked in this one. Because in the end, what is our obligation to each other? Is our own personal survivor the be-all, end-all? Or is how we spend our last hours, you know, significant, important? I mean, you get one spin at this, as far as you know, and I would like to think that if I knew I was going out, I would want to do it on my own terms as much as possible and not think myself a coward or a failure. Despite what anyone else might see in the scenario, I think that, you know, your judgment is your own. I mean, maybe the end that we meet at the end of things, at this zombie apocalypse or otherwise, maybe it's not something all-powerful that judges us. Maybe it is truly us who judge ourselves. We know in our darkest heart what we did right and what we did wrong. These are large themes to be confronted with in a zombie movie. So I have to give a lot of credit to it. The production value is very strong and they use Australia. They use the cinematography and sort of the landscape. And I like that they involve sort of Aboriginal sort of traditional peoples of the land who are, I guess, a little better built for surviving in the general nature in a less sort of quote-unquote civilized world and who maybe have a better skill set to keep themselves and people around them alive. And that's very interesting in the modern age. The, the safe place to take this child is to what a lot of people would call a quote-unquote primitive culture. Um, and I don't know, there's just a lot of ideas and typical zombie movie kind of <laughs> thinking, you know? It's just not as simple as a bunch of creatures are trying to eat us or if you get bit, you're infected. I mean, that's there, but true to form for why I have such respect for the zombie genre. There is so much more here, and I really respect that. Yeah, there's some violence, yeah, there's some zombie fun, and yeah, like, there is a through line for you. And again, it's, the short is like an A+, the movie is like a B, but I would not discourage anybody from watching either or both. You can, you can find the short film Cargo on YouTube. You can find the feature film on Netflix. But again, Netflix, as a lifetime connoisseur of zombie movies and of horror movies, why can't I own a physical copy of this movie? Why can't fans have this in their own collections? Why is it exclusive to Netflix? I mean... It's the ongoing problem and it's my ongoing issue with the whole enterprise that is Netflix. They give us what we want 
to a certain degree, but they also seem to choose to deny us. You know, renting and selling movies are how a lot of the people who, you know, came up with Netflix made their fortune. And it seems ungrateful <laughs> to deny us this. Please watch Cargo if you haven't. It is absolutely worth your time. It's a trying kind of emotional, get you by the heart sort of zombie movie. And it doesn't happen as often as I'd like it to. One of the main things that I was so impressed with with Train to Busan, which is one of the great zombie movies of the last decade, is the emotional punch that it had. This movie doesn't have the visceral violent punch, but its heart, its emotions, are right where you want it to be. So it's kind of interesting to build your horror movie around a disability, I guess, for lack of another word. Um, it's become strangely vogue to have these weird sensory horror movies. The first one that I can really think of that, you know, made a lot of impression with people was like from back in the 60s, Wait Until Dark, where a bunch of goons are trying to get a doll from a blind woman and they keep messing with her and changing their voices and we feel more frightened for her because she seems more fragile, more in danger than anyone else would be. The peril, the danger felt bigger than it was before. But recently there's been a lot of these movies, even on Netflix, Bird Box with Sandra Bullock, you know, where you can't look at your enemy or the enemy will render you insane. Um, it's become quite popular. Uh, a Quiet Place is probably the movie that's like the most popular and the most celebrated of these sensory horror movies, which is confusing to me because Don't Breathe exists. And I think Don't Breathe is easily twice the movie that A Quiet Place was and has much fewer premise problems. But again, it's nothing new. We're seeing a lot of it lately, but I remember from the 90s a movie called Mute Witness... Um, the Pang Brothers did this movie, The Eye, about a woman who was blind, but when she gets her eyes fixed, she starts seeing supernatural ghosty things. There's a really embarrassing Netflix movie called The Silence with Stanley Tucci about, you know, creatures that... It's, it's all of the, the time and place right now. Sensory horror is huge. So how do you add to this genre... How do you not, you know, just be another exhausting, wasted entry and forgotten entry in the <laughs> sensory horror movies? Well, here's my solution. Hire Mike Flanagan. In fact, if you're making any kind of horror movie and you can get Flanagan to direct, I mean, that's fine. This is the guy, he did Doctor Sleep. He did another Stephen King adaptation for Netflix called Gerald's Game. That one being particularly impressive in that it Felt like an unadaptable book, but he did a great job of it. He did Before I Wake, he did Oculus, he did Absentia. 
he and his, uh, I believe his wife and his definitely creative muse, Kate Siegel, have worked together a lot and they have done consistently good work. Today, I'm here to talk to you about Hush. It's a Netflix original movie about an author who lives in a big spooky house in the middle of the woods and she can't hear and she can't speak. So, uh, she is vulnerable. This is sort of the question though. I mean, is it, is it exploitive? I mean, I know that all of these characters typically are being treated very fairly. Usually they're smarter and even more capable than your average person. They sort of set it up that way. But are we supposed to be more frightened for them because they suffer a disability? I think the answer is yes, but I still think that you can have a good movie that way. I like to listen to these, or watch these old reviews from Siskel and Ebert back in the 80s and 90s, and I get so frustrated listening to them talk about how it's so cheap to put children in peril. You don't want to put kids in peril because it's just an easy way to raise the stakes. Like, by that rationale, you know, Hansel and Gretel is too, too intense or too exploitive to be taken. You know, we are talking about horror movies, we are talking about things that require conflict. So, <laughs> that's kind of where you need to go. I mean, if you want to be offended by this, I suppose if you look hard enough, you could, but I invite you to not look that difficult. Another actor I want to mention, because he kind of plays the psycho in this particular film, is John Gallagher Jr. He has specifically singled out this woman to be a victim because he believes this is going to make his job easier. In fact, his behavior is kind of giddy and he almost seems to be having a lot of fun with it until things start changing around for him. He's an interesting actor. I keep on seeing him in things and then I'm like, that guy. He starred in The Belko Experiment, which was a weird movie written by James Gunn, which I enjoyed, but maybe not for all tastes. Uh, he played a very likable character in Underwater, which was interesting because of how unlikable he is in this particular movie. And I remember him in 10 Cloverfield Lane as well, the, that controversial sci-fi contribution to the Cloverfield universe. I keep on seeing this guy, and he keeps on doing good work. So let's all keep an eye on John Gallagher Jr. to see what goes on for him in the future. I think the great, great, great pleasure of Hush is seeing this asshole have the tables turned on him. There's a lot of that. In a lot of these stalker movies, I think probably the most popular one when I was growing up was Sleeping with the Enemy. Basically, is sort of put upon this thing where our central character gets put through the ringer and over and over again, she is subjected to horror, she is subjected to obstacles, she is subjected to failure, she is subjected to tragedy. But finally, finally the worm turns. Finally, she gets some back. And the dramatic satisfaction that comes through this makes any other problems with the movie or any other familiarities with this movie kind of disappear, in my opinion. What do you think, John? Hmm. Should I go in there, get this over with? Probably right. Should wait a little while longer. Till she's lost some more blood. I don't want to tempt a shot. In case her aim's any better than her judgment. 
Oh, hey there. Hey. Huh? Is this your house? Does your mommy live there? Where we run into trouble is the predictability factor. You kind of get the feeling pretty early in the movie that this isn't going to be one of those dour, super heavy, dark movies where, you know, the evil does its business and then wanders on to the next house. We, we, we kind of established that maybe this isn't the world that we're living in. And the convention, as I said earlier, of this big, lonely house in the middle of nowhere. Like, she must be a millionaire author. Like, she must really be kicking ass that way. And sure, maybe you want to choose to live, you know, in a vulnerable spot in the middle of nowhere. But all of the rooms in her house seem vast, and the place seems designed to be, you know, for a horror movie to take place in. You know, her friend's going to stop by to, to check in on her, and what's going to happen? And uh, how is she, what is her initial moves going to be, and are they going to be predicted? I think there is a case to be made that savvy viewers are likely to be ahead of this movie a lot of the time but that's where the technique comes into it i think in another movie it would almost render the film a little bit boring or make the pace sort of lag a little bit for me and that i know where this is going everybody knows where this is going i know where this scene is going and i know what by this scene's existence means that the next scene is going to be but Flanagan keeps things nice and tight, and it's also a really quick movie. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It lets itself breathe, it lets you feel the tension, it lets you look in the corners of all these vast, per perhaps over-designed rooms, but it works on your nerves. And I think at the end of the day, that's what you want a horror movie to do. Also, Siegel or Seagull, I'm not sure how you say her, her name, I, I, I think real points for taking this role seriously and how difficult it is to, you know, really commit to that bit. I've seen lots of other actors who they play people in wheelchairs, but the way they move outside of the chair just doesn't seem how I've seen people in wheelchairs move. Or I've seen people play blind, and the way they react to the environment just doesn't feel exactly accurate to what I imagine a blind person would do. I mean, obviously, I'm ignorant when I speak to this, but I get the feeling like Seagull did her homework here. And part of the frustrating thing is, that, you know, if a floorboard creaks or a pane of glass breaks, or if the dude is right there, just turn around and see, you know, we feel that pressure we feel that fear for her and uh that's you know it's in the screenplay but i think that the presentation and the acting really helped us get over the line on this so at the end of the day what am i going to say about hush is it another sensory horror movie yes but it's another mike flanagan sensory horror movie so it's way better than it has any business being there's a significant amount of girl power into this if that sort of gets your <laughs> blood going you really want to see this bad guy punished, and this bad guy gets punished. I mean, spoilers, but this is the world that we live in. Um, I'm always going to be on board for the next Mike Flanagan picture, and like, he even made a sequel to the Ouija movie, Workable. Like, he hasn't really made a bad movie. He's made some familiar movies, but he hasn't made a bad one. I'm a big fan of his work, and I would like to collect it all and have my own... DVD copies of them. 
But alas, Netflix won't let me buy this movie, and Netflix won't let me buy a copy of Gerald Games for reasons. I mean, it would just be more profit for them, but whatever. Uh, it's interesting, too. Strange, maybe a little bit off of the map. Mike Flanagan also directed an adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House from Shirley Jackson. It is a miniseries for Netflix. And that one was popular enough that they did release a physical copy. And I did, sucker that I am, buy it. Help me out, Netflix. Support your movies by letting me pay more money for them as a collector. No? No? You don't want to do that? Okay then, hush. You only think you know this story. We all have that one friend from school, the strange kid, the class freak, the guy whose antics amused, entertained, and maybe even alarmed us. The one who sticks in our heads and even with the passing of the years. That classmate is invariably left behind when we graduate, vanishing into memory, filed away with our old yearbooks and other teenage mementos. But every now and then we wonder, whatever happened to that friend? For one man who grew up in a small town in Ohio, that question was answered by every media outlet in the world on July 22, 1991, when Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested for the murder of 17 young men and teenage boys. My Friend Dahmer is a haunting original graphic novel by Durf Bachter, an award-winning political cartoonist and comics creator. In these pages, Bachter tries to make sense of the future serial killer with whom he shared classrooms, hallways, and car rides. What emerges is a surprisingly sympathetic portrait of a disturbed young man struggling helplessly against the ghastly urges bubbling up from the deep recesses of his psyche. The Dahmer recounted here universally regarded as an inhuman monster by the rest of the world is a lonely oddball who, in reality, is all too human. A shy kid sucked inexorably into madness while the adults in his life failed to notice. We all know what Dahmer did. But in My Friend Dahmer, Bachdorf provides, from his unique vantage point, profound and at times even strangely comic insight into how, and more important, why Jeffrey Dahmer transformed from a high school nerd into a depraved fiend as notorious as Jack the Ripper. In My Friend Dahmer, Bachdorf comes as close as anyone to explaining the seemingly unexplainable phenomenon of one Jeffrey Dahmer, Revere High School Class of 1978. I think the graphic novel is an under-respected art form. I mean, there are plenty of people who enjoy it, and people who love the graphic novel seem to love them a lot. But you're either in that category of people who love graphic novels a lot, or you seem to be one of those people who wouldn't deign open one. I used to have a boss and I worked in a fast food restaurant who wouldn't watch The Simpsons because The Simpsons is animated, and animation is for children. 
I feel sorry for how much quality entertainment he's denied himself for this stubborn belief, but it's his right to believe it. Similarly, people think that a graphic novel doesn't have the same weight because it's built of images, not just words. Well, my favorite form of entertainment is films, which is a combination of moving pictures and words in the purpose of a story. And you can look at these graphic novels as basically storyboards for a film. Like, instead of you creating the pictures in the head as you're reading their novel, these pictures are there for you. And it is a very, very unique sort of very artist-driven form. Both the story you chose to tell, how you choose to tell it like in the form of the story, and how you choose to approach the artwork within it. Now, for instance, this book, My Friend Dahmer, it's about the high school years of infamous serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. And you would think, closing your eyes and picturing what a graphic novel about Jeffrey Dahmer would look like, we'd be dealing with something really nasty, something really, I don't know, somebody trying to fill out the unimaginable horror escapes that would be unfolding inside Jeffrey Dahmer's head and somehow drawing it onto a page. Maybe Junji Ito with his bizarre ability to, I don't know, draw insanity on the page. Maybe that's what we would, we would picture in our heads. But that's not what we get here. In fact, flipping through this book, the, the pictures look like satire. They look like a, a piece out of a mad magazine or something like that. The drawings are cartoony, but the story is chillingly, aggressively real. And it's not about mass murder. It's not about psychology. It's not about even really why. I mean, it asks the question and has some ideas. But it's about the high school experience. It's about how we look at each other and how we don't look at each other. You get the feeling that even in four short years, everybody in that school, on one way or another, one day or another, one moment or another, saw that there was something very wrong with Jeffrey Dahmer. But they just rolled their eyes and thought, that's Jeffrey Dahmer. For all of that, the real accomplishment of this particular graphic novel is how horrifyingly relatable it is. I think it's a story about bullying in some ways, and as anyone who's listened to the show knows, I have a real hard time with it. And the author, who went to high school for real with Dahmer, is named Durf Backdurf. <laughs> like, Durf Backdurf. If ever there was a name that was going to be made fun of at school, you'd think it would be him. But no, instead it was a tall, lanky, loner kid. And he was clearly dealing with a lot of issues. He was clearly socially awkward. His parents were going through a terrible divorce. And he was self-medicating himself with alcohol. And I guess in the mid-70s, kids in high school drinking alcohol was... Well, it wasn't accepted, but it was less of an unusual, horrifying thing than we sort of look at it in this day and age. I think with the benefit of hindsight and looking back, Backdurf can see all of these really obvious signs. But no one was going to do anything about Dahmer until somebody found a body. This is the tragedy of it. I also have respect for how honest Backdurf is about himself. There's a chapter in the book where he and a bunch of his friends pool a bunch of money together and actually hire Dahmer to come with them to a mall 
and he'd just act out and be weird and awkward in public in front of other people so that they could laugh at how uncomfortable Dahmer made other people. Dahmer got some money out of it, he was able to get drunk for another few days, and Dr. himself says that was the day where he really questioned both himself and, you know, how he was including slash discluding slash bullying Dahmer to how maybe this wasn't funny. Maybe watching this kid pound back six beers in the 10 minute car ride to the mall and willfully giddily make a fool of himself publicly just so he can have more beer money for tomorrow. All in the understanding that he's not really one of the boys. He's not really one of their friends. He's being paid to do this. He is forever an outsider. His parents are going through a terrible divorce, so he has nobody at home to talk to, no one who's really paying attention to what he's going through. He's wrestling with his own issues, his own anger, his own pent-up rage. He's dealing with the fact that he was a closeted homosexual in a time and place where that was not going to be easy or accepted. There was just piling up stressful things going on in Dahmer's life, and everyone sort of knew it, but nobody did anything about it. Now look, I'm not saying that I <laughs> was that fucked up when I was a kid. My parents were a little different, but they weren't, you know, they didn't get an ugly divorce. They weren't abusive. I didn't feel invisible to them, but I did feel like an outsider. I was the new kid almost every school year through for a lot of years in a row. And I do know what it's like to be that outsider. I do know what it's like to have that instinct of any kind of attention will be good attention. I don't care if they're laughing at me or with me. I just want to be included. This book allows me to feel pity for at least a young Jeffrey Dahmer. A young, put upon, beaten, still fighting this darkness within him Dahmer. Now, as things progress and as he got farther away from high school and farther away from reality and the madness took over, my ability to sympathize drops drastically. You're not allowed to kill people to fulfill your own twisted sexual agenda. And however much of a victim he may have been once upon a time, I want to make it very clear. The man became evil. But he became evil. He was a monster, but he became a monster. And the horrifying thing about this novel is that everyone just watched. I don't want to relate to Jeffrey Dahmer, but this book kind of makes me relate to Jeffrey Dahmer. And it's not exploitive. It doesn't get into the business. It doesn't get into, you know, him murdering people. Somehow his awakening sexually got mixed in with a period of time in his adolescence where he was fascinated with dead things. He would find things in the woods behind his house and play with them. That is not healthy. That is not, you know, a good thing. But pick your darkest moment in your life, the weirdest thing that you ever witnessed, ever saw, or ever did. And imagine there was no consequence. There was no person there to help you get through it. And there was no, no wick, you know, no way to extinguish that fascination. What if instead of it being horrifying, it became fascinating? Where would you go? And what if nobody saw it or no one seemed to see it? Or what if they did see it and did nothing? 
So if you're one of those people who doesn't read graphic novels, I encourage you to check out graphic novels. And why am I talking about this in the Netflix issue? Well, Netflix has a documentary based, or sorry, a feature based on this book. And I think the book is a thousand times better, which is usually the case. But I don't know. They, maybe they needed to do it animated. Maybe they needed to do it in a similar style of the book. Dr. Durf mentions that uh, he did all these illustrations, some of which are published in the book. Uh, and his art teacher would give him a hard time, even though he had reams of paper full of drawings. They weren't art drawings, they were his personal voluntary drawings. And again, I could so relate to that. I had an art teacher in high school who gave me terrible grades, even though I had reams and reams of drawings, but I wasn't drawing what he wanted me to draw. So yeah, you're on the record on this podcast. Fuck you, high school art teacher. You don't know what you're talking about. It really doesn't seem like it would have taken a lot. One friend, one connection, one guidance counselor, one teacher, one priest, one neighbor, one person reaching out a hand to make the world to make a little more sense to Dahmer. But we didn't get there because this comic book, this cartoon exists in the real world. I guess maybe that's the prism of the graphic novel working for us. It's somehow easier thinking of it as a cartoon. 1922, a man's pride was a man's land. And so was his son. My wife, she wanted us to leave all this behind. We can move. The cities are for fools. We divorce. We both know that's what you want. Life is rarely fair, especially out here. And I believe that there's another man inside every man. A conniving man. I'm gonna sell. You and my son are coming with me. In 1922, I murdered my wife. April 11th, 1930, Magnolia Hotel, Omaha, Nebraska. To whom it may concern. My name is Wilfred Leland James, and this is my confession. In June of 1922, I murdered my wife. Arlette Christina Winters James, and hid her body by tipping it down an old well. My son, Henry Freeman James, aided me in this crime, although at 14 he was not responsible. I cousined him into it, playing upon his fears and beating down his quite normal objections over a period of two months. This is a thing I regret even more bitterly than the crime, for reasons this document will show. So begins the novella 1922 from the Stephen King collection, Full Dark, No Stars, an aptly titled collection because all of the stories in here are super heavy, super dark, and 1922 is the first story in this. It is also the subject of a Netflix adaptation from 2017, and it stars Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane has an interesting history with Stephen King. In fact, if you wanted, 
you could have like a Thomas Jane, Stephen King triple feature. You could start with Dreamcatcher, follow it up with The Mist, and finish with 1922. The catch is you would have to watch Dreamcatcher again. But it would be an interesting trajectory because I think in Dreamcatcher, he's quite bad in a quite bad movie. And in The Mist, I think he's really good in a very good movie. And in 1922, he's almost unrecognizable as Thomas Jane, you know. He's weirdly inconsistent actor to me. There are times where I think he absolutely has the goods, and there are times where I just don't feel like there's anything coming from him. And the character that he brings here, and both the malicious contempt that he has at the first act of the story, and the increasing regret and insanity that sort of befalls the character, uh, I think it was brilliantly played. It's a morality tale, and I guess in many ways a familiar one. This guy is old school. He's this dirty 30s farmer, and he values his land and his son more than anything else. And his wife, his troubling, you know, not made for this type of life wife, wants to sell all the property and, you know, move upstate and move to the big city. He is vehemently against going to the city, but she's happy to do it anyway. Happy to sell the farm, leave him in terrible financial dire straits, losing his family legacy, and to add insult to injury, take his son with her. Well, this will not stand, so he wants to get rid of his wife. But the only way that works is if he gets his son on side. It's really interesting because what's sort of the thing that starts him off down this journey of evil is, you know, righteous in his mind. He's very old school. He wants his land and he wants his son and he wants to, you know, his son to inherit the land and for that to keep going on. But the more we hear about this life on the land, the more horrible the place is, especially even before the crime, but especially after the crime, he just sort of sits there catatonically thinking about what he's done and, 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 you know, how his life is slowly unfolding. And there's nothing pleasant about this farm life. There's nothing beautiful about it. It's dirty. It's gritty. It's hot. It's sweaty. It's infested with rats. If you have a thing for rats, by the way, you're not going to like this movie or the novel that it's based off, the novella that it's based off of. She can't say those things about Shannon. Oh, but she will. That's just how she is. You know that. Well, town a good Lord made her. Right? She'll split you and Shannon up to one guarantee that. If we let her. Didn't you get your own lawyer? You think the gun that I can afford to stand up to them lawyers in Farrington will draw us. And she won't have 100 acres, too. And she mean for them to have. This is the only way, boy. But you've got to help me. Molly Parker plays the wife character in the adaptation of the film here, and 
I always think she's an incredible actress. I always like to support Canadian talent, and she is a very big Canadian talent. But it's interesting because a lot of times you could just sort of play her as this sort of reticent, stubborn, Stephen King, evil woman. And there's a lot of layers to this. She's pretty hard-nosed because I think she feels like she knows she has to be with her husband. And there's a brief moment where she feels like her husband's going to take the leap with her. And she really feels joy. And you sort of, you feel that. There's actual warmth in that character. And sometimes with some of the more difficult characters in Stephen King works, that doesn't always come across. Sometimes the Stephen King villains are so evil and so cacklingly, like, they just become unbelievable. They just, like, they'll kill a puppy to amuse themselves. They, they will, you know, spit in a cop's face for no reason. Like, counterproductive evil. She doesn't play that. What works in the film is what works in the book, too, is the grittiness, the griminess, the environment. Like, it's a suffocatingly grotesque environment. You, like, like I say, you feel the grit in your skin and the sweat and the, the tactile ickiness of everything. And then this added sort of creepiness of rats. Yes, uh, they try to hide the body down a well, and for various reasons, they have to check on. They have to try and cover this up. They end up dropping a, a, a cow down the well to sort of cover up their need to fill the well and uh, not use it anymore and further cover up the crime. But as she sits down there and starts to rot, she is slowly being feasted upon by rats, and sort of them gnawing away at her is sort of his guilt gnawing away at his consciousness his conscience and his son who you know was had a, a purpose wedge was driven between he and his mother mainly because of his love with a next door neighbor that gets further complicated by the involvement of you know she's getting pregnant and uh, that's breaking the rules he's supposed to work the land with his father before he starts his family and like it's all crumbling it's all crumbling the son decides he wants to run off with the woman that he loves, and unfortunately, that leads to tragic ends as well. And the whole time, this man just sits there in this rotting, rat-infested hellhole of a farmhouse and suffers, and you just feel the rot both physically in his environment and you can tell in his psyche. There's just nothing left of him. He has made a terrible choice, and now he has nothing to do but sit and live with it. The film was written and directed by Zach Hilditch, and uh, I don't know if he's necessarily a name that people recognize a lot, but I'd like to think he's going places. I reviewed for the podcast an apocalyptic film he made in Australia called These Final Hours, and I just thought that was a great, great, you know, end-of-the-world scenario, sort of sci-fi apocalyptic thing. Someone at Netflix noticed that this guy was talented and yeah he adapted this Stephen King novel and it's interesting the the character work and the sort of tactile world that he creates that's very Stephen King but the horror aspects of it are much more psychological of course we get the imagery of the rat bites and sort of maybe zombie haunted imageries but whether or not there's a actual supernatural element or whether or not this is all madness I mean that's all very gray and in that way, it's kind of different with Stephen King. He's usually very proudly 
supernatural, almost stubbornly supernatural. Um, and I like that this adaptation gives us the horror that we want from Stephen King, but also, you know, there's a reason that there's such a huge fan base for this author. His stories are deep and complex. He'll work in any genre, and he will do so very successfully. Very often, horror creeps its way, hits his sort of dark fingers into the work, but it's always worth your time to explore a Stephen King story. And I will keep my eye on this director. I mean, I've only seen two of his films, but so far I am very impressed with both of them. And again, I hate to ring this bell because I feel like I've mentioned it already. I've been collecting movies since 1990. I collected VHS, I collected DVD, I collected Blu-ray. And I would collect Stephen King adaptations, good, bad, and ugly, because I was that big of a fan. I wanted to have them all. I wanted to compare and contrast. I wanted to possess them because I am a collector. And 1922, as much as I would love to sell it on, my, on the podcast, or well, I guess I'm doing it right now anyway, I would love to include it in my collection. But no, I just have to rent it from Netflix. But that's the appeal of this digital age too. I mean, I want 1922. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to Netflix for finding this director and giving him this material, or maybe he brought the material to them. However it worked out, it worked out well. So thank you for the movie. But I will never understand why you won't sell us a physical copy. I will never understand it. Also, if you haven't read Stephen King, uh, he seems to know what he's doing. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. I think of ending things. Hello? We're here. Oh, hi. Oh, it's all wet. <laughs> Here they come. Jeff has told us so much about you. He's told me so much about both of you, too. And you came anyway? <laughs> Jake tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Mm, physics. Really? But there's just something profoundly wrong here. Are you okay? Yeah. I think you're ending something. I am so glad Jake has found someone. <laughs> Soon this will all be a distant memory. Who's this? It's me. No, it was me. I tell you, I would misplace my own head if it wasn't screwed onto my own head. I feel like I was seeing them as they were. Seeing them as they will be. Seeing them after they're gone. I'm thinking of it. Did you stay here? Charlie Kaufman was born on November 19th, 1958. <clears throat> By all accounts, he spent his entire life interested in stories and storytelling, writing plays and screenplays and stories in, throughout his youth. He ended up working in television for quite a long time before finally getting his break. <clears throat> in 1999, a little movie called Being John Malkovich came out, directed by Spike Jones, and he also directed subsequently Adaptation. These two movies, this one-two punch, basically gave him a basically a free ticket for Hollywood, as far as I'm concerned and a lot of people in Hollywood. We want to know what this guy's going to do, and we're interested. And 
interesting people want to work with him you know um human nature and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind are both screenplays that are done by him that were directed by michelle gondry spike jones and michelle gondry are about as innovative and sort of button or, or forward-thinking directors as we have right now and they've both done two of his scripts and then of course there was a George Clooney picture, I believe it was the first film he directed, first feature film, called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which was based off a book by Chuck Barris, which was supposedly a true story, but maybe not. And George Clooney directed the hell out of it, and it was an interesting story, and Sam Rockwell got a starring role before a lot of people cared about who Sam Rockwell was. And then Charlie Kaufman decided to take all of his credit and, you know, turn himself into a filmmaker. He was going to direct his own scripts. So came Synecdoche, New York, or Synodoshi, New York. I'm not sure how you say that. Neither is anyone else, apparently. Uh, this one he wrote and directed, and then following that, he had a collaboration with this weird puppet movie called Anomalisa. And I think the dividing line in his feature films between when he was getting his scripts directed by other people and his scripts were directed by himself is sort of where things change, maybe not necessarily for the better. Whereas I am hypnotized by the oddness of being John Malkovich, and although it doesn't wall-to-wall work for me, I am amused by human nature and all the strange swings that it's taken. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is about as ambitious a romantic movie as I've ever seen. But I guess, in the end, even though I knew all of these movies were about Charlie Kaufman, I never thought it was a problem. I'm thinking of ending things. What does this have to do with I'm thinking of ending things? Why am I spending all this time in the review talking about Charlie Kaufman? Well, not to get too meta and not to play into the Charlie Kaufman hand, but everything Kaufman writes is about him. And maybe, just maybe, adaptations are not what he's good at. Whoa, whoa, Larry, what are you talking about? Isn't Adaptation one of the best movies, like, of the 2000s? You know what? A case could be made. But even in that movie, as he is making an adaptation, he is commenting on his inability to do an actual adaptation. He's telling us all about the book he's supposed to adapt, but in the end, he's telling another story. Adaptation may make you want to read The Orchid Thief, but I don't think if you watched Adaptation, you would have had any kind of understanding of the novel. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, likewise, since the story and the source is so highly questionable, the fact that he plays fast and loose and makes the movie a little crazy and a little out there seems in keeping with the nervous, crazy tension in the story. You're allowed to work a little bit, you know, <laughs> outside the lines when you know the source material was doing the same thing. But there's something so specific and so pathologically selfish, in a way, about Charlie Kaufman's work that once I noticed that it was always about him, I started to lose my interest a little bit. I'm thinking of ending things. Speaking of thinking of ending things, that's a book by a Canadian author named Ian Reid, and it deals with multiple personalities, skeered narration, characters that don't exist. There's, you know, things about the, the book that are very sort of familiar templates of a horror, thriller, stalker genre. And there are things that are kind of out there, tricky, you know, trying to 
push the edges of what a narrative fiction novel can be, especially in the horror genre. If you want another example of this, I would invite you to read The House of Leaves by uh, Mark Z... What is it? Dan, Danieluski? Danieluski? I hope I'm saying that right. Um, just sort of another guy who's playing with the genre of the novel. And I wonder if that's what brought Kaufman on board with this. He was interested in how the story was told, and he wanted to play with that. I'm thinking of ending things. The weird thing is, is that in his movie adaptation, the twins, played by Nicolas Cage, are talking about a screenplay that one of them is working on about a serial killer. And the movie's sort of mocking about how silly and over-the-top and impossible the premise of that movie is. And here we are with him actually breaking down and making that movie. I'm thinking of ending things. It's, it's strange. This actual premise might have actually already been made into a movie called Identity, starring John Cusack. If you haven't seen that movie, I'm not going to wreck it for you. But in a lot of ways, that's what's happening here. Um, I don't mind skewed narrator. I don't mind, you know, a challenging story. But in a lot of ways, this works better in book form than movie form. And in a lot of ways, the more stuff that he changes and Kaufmanizes and makes about himself, the farther away he gets from the book. I'm thinking of ending things. What does it mean? What was his track on it? What was Charlie Kaufman's take on this particular source material? What was he going for? Why does our protagonist's name keep changing in the movie? She doesn't get a name in the book, but she gets several in the movie. Why do the parents that she meets, in quotation mark, why do their ages keep changing? I mean, they don't get progressively older or younger either. They just seem to be a different age every time we talk them. I mean, if you're going to have Tony Collette in a movie, I mean, she's amazing. Like, give her a character, give her a through line, and likewise, give us that. Why are most of the reveals in the film left unexplained? At least the novel tries to make sense of itself. Why is a climactic scene of confrontation done in an interpretive dance instead of in, you know, legitimate conflict? What is reality? I know why the audience doesn't ask any questions, but we don't know why the characters don't ask any questions. And even if that makes sense later on, nobody asks any hard questions at any time in the movie. What do all these things mean? I would argue that all of these things mean nothing. I would argue that all of these things mean nothing. Is it an interesting experience watching I'm Thinking of Ending Things? Yeah, I mean, there's great acting in it. You never quite know what the next scene's going to be. You don't know how A plus C equals anything or if it equals anything. And it has that strange, holy shit, what did I just watch quality. And it's not necessarily uninteresting or bad. But as a work of adapting a novel, I think it's kind of a failure. As a telling a story that makes sense or means something to me, again, I think it's kind of a failure. I, I mean, I want to be on board with Kaufman. I'm, I've supported a lot of his films, and if you ever hear me talk about them on the show, I'm going to rave, but I'm thinking of ending things. He has become so self-obsessed and so dispassionate about anything that's not him that 
we're kind of losing the emotional strength. And once we get over the sort of edginess and differentness of the work, I mean, if we can't connect emotionally, then we sort of enter into this David Lynch territory where we don't understand it, and therefore it's genius. It blows our mind, and therefore it's genius. It's full of ideas and ambition, but it maybe doesn't mean anything. Therefore, it's genius. I don't know. I don't know. I think sometimes when two brilliant people or two brilliant works meet each other, one of those works tends to eat the other. When Stanley Kubrick directed The Shining, I think Stanley Kubrick ate Stephen King. In this case, I think Charlie Kaufman ate Ian Reid, the author of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's a weird place to land on a movie. I have a lot of respect for the writer, I have great respect for the cast, and I didn't hate the movie. But I'm thinking of ending things. I mean, at least with my level of enthusiasm for Charlie Kaufman. Rob would have loved this place. He's a good man. The best of us. You know, they have walking trails in England. Pubs. Come on, man, where's your soul? Ah! Oh, oh, it's twisted, it's twisted. All right, yep. Oh, easy, ah. easy. Look, we go southwest through here. We cut the journey in half. Or through the forest? Yeah, why not? We should have gone to Vegas. Oh, you'd have found something to fall over in Vegas too, mate. Now, is it me? Or is it really quiet in here? It's been gutted. Could be hunters out here. Bait, possibly. Or it's the bit they don't show you in the nature documentary. It's a warning. We shouldn't be here. Where the hell are we, Huts? We should pitch the tents. This is ridiculous, man. Luke, you're getting soaked. Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear anything. Come on. So The Ritual is a Netflix original creature feature. And uh, it is like right off of the factory of creature features in that it has all of the elements that you would expect to see in a traditional form monster movie. You have a... An initial tragedy that starts off the adventure in which uh, one of the friends of the group is killed in the, a rob as a robbery takes place. And then we go a year later uh, where they go out on an adventure on the precipice of that tragedy. And uh, they're, they're walking. They're doing this walking tour in this remote sort of forested area. And one of them suffers an injury and they decide that they want to take a shortcut through the woods. So always is a good idea. We have a group of people working off of a tragedy who have inherent uh, conflict within the group, going someplace they shouldn't, making bad decisions, getting picked off one at a time. Like I said, it sounds like it could be written by a computer, but this is where execution comes into play. Yeah, it sounds like a movie that you've seen a lot of times before, but I have to say, I was really, really impressed. <laughs> Did I steal your notes, this word for word? <laughs> they kind of wrote down or something like that, yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny, though, is you started off calling it a creature feature. I never even thought of it as a creature feature. Oh, really? I mean, as there is, you know, a creature in the film, but I, to me, it just feels like so much more. It's it's also a, a cult movie, and it's, uh, and it's also, you know, a 
it's got so many different elements in it but I, I really I really dig this movie yeah like uh, actually uh, too much I'm trying to find out exactly where it was but uh, yeah I wrote this down Lost in the Woods let's take a shortcut you've seen it all before but this just feels different it's how it's shot and you feel like you know these guys and I think that was key is the the relationship between these friends uh, you just you know that feeling of old friends they've probably been friends for 20 years since yeah. high school or college and every year they get together and you can feel the relationships are real and they start to get strained some of them you feel like they're friends just because they used to be friends and now they still are friends because they used to be friends um you know they, they start blaming each other for things that have happened in the past but and they also have those good times where they're taking funny pictures of each other or selfies or you know slagging each other like guys do and uh, and saying goodbye to their old friend uh, i think that is really what brought you into the film yeah uh, it, it's sort of like the boys version of the descent in a lot of ways like you could lay down the descent in this side by side in a lot of ways and the trajectory is, is not that different it would actually make a good double feature um Rafe Spall is our main character and he harbors a lot of personal guilt a because it was his idea to stop by the store and b because he hid basically while his friend met his grim fate and whether or not they have said it out loud, uh, some of his friends have similar issues and feelings about him. And this is all bubbling up during this wet walk through this looking fairly unpleasant area. Where were they walking? Do you remember what country they were in? The Swedish, in Sweden. They're in Sweden, okay. Um, yeah, some mountain uh, range in Sweden. You're right, though. Uh, I think what really ups the game, too, is the creep factor of the cult stuff and how small things starts. There's uh, figures drawn, drawn in the trees or a very clearly worn path in the middle of these woods, which like nobody should be living here. So why would there be a worn path here? The massacred animal that they, they come across, like uh, you can just feel this escalation and like danger, danger, danger. And they're doing everything wrong because unfortunately, unlike the viewers, these guys don't realize that they're in a horror movie. And we like all of them, even the most obnoxious members of this group. As they get whittled away, it hurts. It sucks to see them all go. <laughs> Can we talk about, uh, before things get really weird, I right. think the first moment is when they uh, they take refuge in that rundown cabin that's straight from the Blair Witch Project. Yes, it is. Uh, but except, except a little bit creepier. And so they go inside this, there's, it's a rainstorm, they're all lost, they need to get dry. Uh, they go inside this cabin, there's that creepy shrine upstairs, and the group, you know, after some time, they fall asleep. And as they sleep, something happens. And the next morning, everybody is messed up. One guy wakes up and, you know, he's pissed his pants, and their friend is upstairs naked, praying to this idol. And uh, everybody is, is messed up. And I find that's a scary scene, because you don't know what is, everybody's seeing something and they're all being affected differently and uh, you start to feel their fear because something's in their heads and yeah. one guy's been marked with these bloody marks on his chest we don't know what's happened with him and 
they're all sort of fighting their own personal horror, but uh, they're all also trying to stay calm for each other. But there's nothing to be calm about. Like, there's no way to say, well, let's just be rational about this. Or, or there's got to be a logical explanation for all of this. No, something very seriously, supernaturally bad is happening. And they all know it right away, it seems like. Yeah, for me, when I see a grown man freaking out and crying with wet pants, yeah. I feel, like, scared. Because I don't know what's... What's happened so extreme that he's got to that level? And why is his friend naked? What's going? What happened, you guys? Like I've been at those parties. But, uh, <laughs> but like there was no alcohol involved here. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're, you you pointed out the guilt. I mean, guilt is a big theme throughout the movie, and, and it carries, and it's an important aspect to to the story in the end. But. Um, you know, that feeling of who carries guilt or, or grief or experiencing trauma in your life. And uh, they, he keeps having these flashbacks to that moment when he could have acted to perhaps save his friend or maybe they both would have died, uh, but he didn't do anything in that time when he felt maybe he, sh he could have. And they have these scenes where he has these flashbacks, but the flashback is incorporated into the woods as well, yeah. which I think is a really neat visual as well, where the woods turn into a convenience store or the liquor store. Yeah. And it's, it's really well done. It pops up a few times. It's like the Rafe Spall character never really left that cowering position behind the aisle in the store. He's been locked mentally in that place forever. And it's one, I really, I know you put a spoiler warning. I really don't even really want to spoil much in this. I mean, there, there's other things you can talk about, but I I really respect the journey that the, of, of this film. And uh, I'm not sure what it is about it, but I really genuinely enjoy it. And I would say for people to watch it, I mean, an, an hour in, things do get different. You're kind of lulled in with the, with the woods. They're lost in the woods looking for a way out. Uh, you find out a whole lot more as far as why they're lost in the woods and why they can't get out and uh, and what's actually going on. And it takes some time, but you're right, there is a creature involved. Uh, what, I was curious, what do you think about the creature design in this? Well, it's I, different. I definitely want to talk about it. It gave me a kind of a strange Wendigo vibe with the huge horns and the upright thing. And it was strange that the, what I first thought were mandibles hanging off the side of its jaws were like human arms. Yeah, it, it looks almost like a combination of like an elk and an upside down human. Yeah. And uh, it's just really strange. And it looked to me as go back to the shrine they found in the cabin. It was obviously that was on top of its head. Yeah. Um, but, but really, really different. And uh, I love just the size of it, too, is impressive. I don't know what you're expecting to see, but when you first see it, it's way bigger. At least for me, it was way bigger than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't, watching the first, I didn't know what was messing with them. I, I thought maybe it's, it's a cult or, or somebody's out in the woods. Um, but yeah, this was, this was an, an unexpected film for me. I kind of heard some people say good things about it. I put it on blindly and right. uh, just let it happen and, and loved it. Uh, it's it's a dark like I mean not dark in story well it is but literally dark uh, I, I watched it for the first time projected and some of the images were actually kind of hard to make out like uh, it, they, they, they were obscured almost too much so uh, you might want to watch this on your 
proper lit up TV or uh, adjust uh, the settings because uh, I, I felt like I was missing pieces of it. But that might have been my projector too, and not so much the film. Um, but it definitely puts you in the woods. And the Blair Witch reference is absolutely dead on. Not just for them waking up confused in there, but just for that helpless, like, everywhere you turn looks like the same piece of woods. Yeah. <clears throat> like, uh, even if you were to panic and run from the creature, like, every direction feels the same, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's because they find that the creature has a bit of a... Can, almost like they can change change the size of the forest and, and you'll get out when it allows you to yep and again kind of uh, the character beats play out and like the uh, they get to resolve a lot of their issues between the inner turmoil, turmoil of the group and again that sounds very paint by numbers but it is executed so well I said the similar thing about the Conjuring movies in that like the both Conjuring 1 and 2 anyway, like they don't feel like they're adding anything new to the genre necessarily, but they're just really well done. The execution of it. Yeah. It's it's just a really good haunted house boo ride. This is a really good men go to the woods and make bad decisions kind of movie. You know what I'd be really into? I'd, I'd be into a prequel to this film. Yeah. I don't think a sequel necessarily, but uh, it's something uh, that explores the mythology of this creature or, or the cult, because there's a lot of uh, you know backstory that they could bring in, and I think that would make uh, that, that would make an interesting story. I don't think another film of a different group of guys now gets lost in the woods. Yeah, no, no. that wouldn't work. We've already done that, and it's the same thing. But um, that might be an interesting place for him to go. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's the problem that I, you know, sequels can bump into is just repetition, repetition, repetition. If you got something new to bring to the table, that'd be great. But that's interesting because uh, from a premise that doesn't sound fresh, there's a springboard to maybe some interesting fresh ideas. And these cult members living in the woods, those cults in horror movies seem to go one way or the other. Either they work credibly and it's creepy, or they don't work at all and it's not creepy at all. And a horror movie that's not creepy is like a comedy that's not funny. It just, it, it sucks. Uh, the Ritual doesn't suck, and um, I would really love to buy a physical copy of it, but Netflix won't fucking let me. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's another one I would buy if I could. Yeah, thanks, Netflix. Anything else you want to say about The Ritual? Uh, no, other than it, it was one of those rare movies that I got really excited about, and I just uh, kind of want people to see. Sold. Do it, people. So thank you for bearing with me for another Bunker episode. I feel like I'm starting to get my groove at least a little bit with this, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm full of crap. You don't know. Maybe. Let me know. You can send feedback. You know how this works. I thought I would do a quick rank of these, although I do have to say for the most part, I did enjoy these movies as much as I can get grumpy about Netflix. They do have good product. That's kind of the frustrating thing. <laughs> the product's so good, I would like to include it in my collection, but selfish. In sixth place, with no joy, I am putting... I'm thinking of ending things. Not that I think it's a terrible movie. It's not bad. I'm not angry with it. I'm just disappointed. It's starting to enter that weird David Lynch world where I think that it's 
more interested in being different and uh, having its own strange identity than doing real service to the source material. So as much as it is interesting and it's got great acting in it and, you know, it's worth watching. David Thewlis and Tony Collette are always going to bring the A-game. So definitely I'm not saying don't check it out, but I don't know what you're going to make of it. In fifth place, and some people are going to be mad at this, I'm going to say Terrifier. But here's some good news about Terrifier, if you are a fan of Art the Clown. Uh, they leased the uh, distribution rights just initially, but you can buy a physical copy of Terrifier. I'm not sure how it's going to work moving forward, but it's not a Netflix exclusive. It was just sort of carried, at least initially, exclusively by Netflix. But see, this way they can have their cake and eat it too. They get the Netflix audience, and they get the movie collector audience, and everybody's happy. If they're gonna make several of these Art the Clown movies, don't they want to make money from them? Don't they want to appeal to the collectors? Anyway, Terrifier made it to fifth place because it's kind of an is-what-it-is experience. It's self-consciously kind of got that grungy, so-so, uh, you know, almost amateur feel, but it was deliberately made that way, so. It is what it means to be. Cargo is in fourth place. It is a solid zombie movie. It's got its very own distinct, strong identity. I like that it's set in Australia. I like the cast. I think it would be higher if I felt like it at least equaled or bettered the short film that inspired it. But I think that short film is every bit as strong. Same, same directors, same writers. So uh, I'd be looking forward to see what they do next. In third place, Hush from Mr. Mike Flanagan, the guy who just can't seem to make an uninteresting horror movie, no matter how questionable the premise may seem to be. But there's real good emotional payoffs in this movie. I had a lot of fun with it. In second place is 1922, which I did not have as much fun with just because of the nature of the story. But I respect very much the effort that went into making the story and being as true to the source material as it could be. Great acting, great texture, just kind of an icky story. And in first place, believe it or not, The Ritual. Sort of a buddy creature quest in the woods, nightmare scenario movie. I think it's very well acted, I think it's very well paced. And I just hunger for this kind of, you know, quality horror creature feature. So uh, whether or not you consider it a creature feature, I mean, I think for me it kind of counts. And uh, it just sort of hit me in that sweet spot. So today, the ritual makes first place. But I'd like to say again, all of these titles are good. And uh, have a read of my friend Dahmer, because it's not what you think it is. It's better. I knew we could do it. I knew we could do it. We got through another Bunker episode, and uh, I you know I'm getting more comfortable talking to myself. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but if you have feedback, how do you feel about these Bunker episodes? Are they good, bad, and different? In the age of COVID, I've been having trouble getting guests or long-distance guests. The, the sound isn't as good a quality as I would like it to be, so this was an experiment. Was it a worthy experiment? I hope you enjoy it. Like I say, two more Bunker episodes, but that won't be until next season. And I hope that you'll hang in there for that. Next week, or I guess two weeks, is going to be the 200th episode 
of Rank and Review. And if that blows your mind, imagine what it does to me. So thank you guys for listening. I hope you tune in for the Big 200. Big love from your host and rhyming Canadian, Larry Parsons. That feedback, once again, review at gmail.com, R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. If you want to listen to other podcasts that are friendly to mine, you can check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. You can check out the Terror Table. You can check out uh, Cobwebs, a gothic horror podcast. There are many other podcasts to reach your ears. Thank you for supporting my show.